Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and, mo and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. You surviving the heat? It's going to get a lot hotter in here. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about the Old Testament law, as Johnny said. You excited? Have you got any lawyers in the house today? But raise your hand. Only one? Oh, come on. It's a city of lawyers, surely. 
So yeah, we're going to spend a little time thinking about the Old Testament law. Um, If we're honest, I think for many of us, the Old Testament law is not very interesting, right? How many of you have spent time in, as we like to say in the church, in Leviticus? What? Right. If we're honest, many of us find the Old Testament law a little difficult. Maybe it's just because we live in a somewhat anti-authoritarian age. We don't like laws. We don't like being told what to do. We're free, right? Right? Or maybe it's because the Old Testament law is long and it's complex and a bit obscure. It's just hard work. Or we're a little unsure what sort of thing the Old Testament law is. If I say the word law, what comes to mind? Yeah, speeding fines, that sort of thing, right? Is that what the Old Testament law is? Just a series of don'ts? So perhaps the Old Testament law is difficult for us, we misunderstand it, we just don't like it. But I wonder if, if we're honest with ourselves, that as the church, our disinterest in the Old Testament law is also because we've heard or we carry a story that goes something like this. Well, the Old Testament, that was all law. But the New Testament, it's all grace, right? You know, Israel tried really hard to reach God by obeying the law. But that failed. So, because obeying the law didn't work, God sent Jesus, plan B, right? And he did away with all that law, so now we're justified by faith, so we really don't need the Old Testament law anymore. Have any of you ever heard that kind of a story being said to you? Well, the problem with that is what we read this morning, and these are Jesus' words, not mine. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Oops. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, nothing will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So I want to spend a little time wrestling with the law this morning. It's not going to be easy. It's hot in here. This is not an easy subject. I apologize right now. But I want to suggest to you that the Old Testament law, far from being some sort of historical relic, interesting for people who like that kind of thing, is a uniquely precious treasure. Can we bring up the image? I don't know if you have the image of the the people dancing. Do you have that? You go right back to the beginning. That's an image of some Jewish folk dancing. And they are dancing with Torah scrolls, the law. You dance with somebody when you want to become intimate with them, right? And I found this in a little article called, Is it true that Jews dance with books? This is what the little article said. Once a year, at the end of a whole string of holidays, that's Jewish holidays, there's something called Simchat Torah. Jews take out all the Torah scrolls in their places of worship and dance with them. That's a little weird. In many places, they dance with them through the streets. Can you imagine? Why? Because everyone understands this is a Jew. This is what it means to be a Jew. Someone who dances 
with God's book. You come close, you tear apart. Turn face to face, then back to back. That's what a dance is like. Around in circles, around and around, like two spinning magnets, in constant push and pull towards each other, like two soulmates locked in a perpetual drama of eternal romance. That's how Jewish people feel about the law. And I'm going to suggest this morning that the giving of law in the Exodus story is an act of essential grace. It's part of the narrative of God's saving grace. And like all acts of God's grace, the giving of the law was purposeful. Salvation and vocation are always locked together because the law will point us what it is like to be truly human. And at the heart of that true identity is something that as Americans is very dear to us. Authentic liberty. What it looks like to be a free people. Essential grace, true identity, authentic liberty. Is that what you associate with the Old Testament law? Well, I hope by the end of this morning, that's what you will. Because we're going to dance a little with God's law. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, in the heat, and in this particular moment, bearing in mind the events of the last 24 hours in this nation, we know we need you. We know we need a deeper revelation of who you are and who we are in you, so that we know how to respond to the world around us. Would you give us now your word, your teaching, by your Spirit? Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Be our teacher. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've really enjoyed listening to this sermon series on the Exodus. I particularly enjoyed um, Dean pointing us to Walter Brueggemann's spiritual framework. And uh, that we pointed out for the whole of Exodus, you get, uh, Exodus, you get this kind of uh, uh, framework of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Yeah? Am I speaking to people who've heard that before? Yes, good. So if you take that framework, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, where does the law fit? Reorientation, absolutely. Let's remind ourselves of the story. The Hebrews people's orientation at the beginning of Exodus is as what? Slaves. We don't know much about them in Egypt. We don't know how they worshipped Yahweh, for instance. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there were no festivals because the story of Exodus had not happened. But they knew one thing, that they were not free. So then you get this act of pure saving grace. The Lord says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypt and to bring them out of that land, out of that orientation, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is a great definition of salvation. To be brought out of a place of slavery into a good and spacious land. But then that first act of saving grace actually surprisingly leads to a season of unexpected disorientation. 
They've left everything familiar. Israel walks out into the unknown, following a God they know very little about. They've some stories of the patriarchs, but they don't know very much about Yahweh. And there they are in the desert with a tired old man called Moses. And I imagine by now that Moses is pretty exhausted after his little Egyptian adventure, right? And what has it all been about? Fundamentally, nothing has changed. They're still the same people. You know, grandma is still fussing. The kids are hungry and bored. And the husband is complaining because he can't watch the sports he likes to watch. Now we're in a desert. Have you ever been out into the desert? I have. Many years ago, I went to Los Angeles, partly with the express intention of driving out of Los Angeles through the mountains and into the Mojave Desert. I wanted to know what it was like to be in a desert. It stinks, literally. It's one of the hottest places on earth, and when you get in there, there's this terrible smell because the sort of brush is kind of burning on the ground. It's like a bad sauna. There's just dust everywhere. The little towns, God knows how people live in them. There's just dust blowing through these towns all the time. You wouldn't want to be there. But God says to this group of dusty people, and interestingly enough, we don't know where the word Hebrew comes from, but it might mean dusty ones. But God says to these dusty ones, my act of saving grace is not over. I haven't finished with you people. I have a surprise for you, a gift. I am going to reorient your life. This is what we read. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of the Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, disoriented. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Well, wouldn't you? Lord, what am I supposed to do now? with all these dusty ones. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's about as much as they knew, we know who we come from, we know who our patriarchs are, and tell the people of Israel, Jacob, Israel, same person, right? You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, this act of saving grace right at the beginning of Exodus. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, that means listen to my voice and keep my covenant, keep dancing in a married-like relationship with me, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I'm stretching it a bit, but I kind of imagine at that moment... Israel breaking out into laughter. What? A bunch of dusty ex-slaves. And God, you're telling us we're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Have you ever had one of those moments where somebody recognizes you for something good in you? Where somebody has said to you, you know what? You're really good at that. You've got a real talent for. Has that ever happened to you? No? I hope it has. 
where somebody sees something in you, what does that feel like? Feels pretty good, right? Feels pretty wonderful, really. It feels like a moment of grace. And this language of kingdom, of kingdom, of priests, of holy nation, it's not a new idea. It's not like God has said, hey, I've just had this great thought. Why don't I find a bunch of slaves and do something completely new that has nothing to do with what it means to be a human being that has never been seen before? No. A holy nation. Let's go back to the story of creation. Adam and Eve, the first human beings. When you read the creation narrative, they're set apart from all other life, right? That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, for a vocation. That is what it is to be holy. And what were they set apart to be? Audience interaction. What did God call them? The image of God. So right at the beginning, Adam and Eve are set apart as holy to be the image of God. And what does it mean to be the image of God? It is to be like a priest to the world, to image God into the world, to be as God is, to have the authority of God in the creation. So here, God, in His grace, is calling out the true identity of all humanity, first through a representative people, the Hebrews. And again, I imagine Israel, after a little giggling, and sort of feeling a little foolish and saying, well, okay, Lord, if that's our identity now, if that's what we're going to be, this kind of treasured holy kingdom, you know, we kind of need something to give us some kind of orientation or reorientation to let us know what that looks like. Because all we've ever known is what it's like to be a slave. And God says, well, I'm glad you asked that question. And in Exodus 20, God begins to give Israel the law. And it's a kind of constitution for a people, beginning with what we read this morning, the Ten Commandments, which is actually just the beginning of the law. And God sets out what it looks like to be a free, authentic, true human being. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's always been about grace right from the word go, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And I'm not going to work through all the Ten Commandments. If you want to hear a good sermon series, a great sermon series, Johnny Kikchina, your rector, did a series on the Ten Commandments a few years ago, and you can go and look that up. But it seems to me is that what God sets out here for us is it says, look, you were a slave... Here is what a true human being looks like. One who is not a slave to anything or anyone. It is a person who knows that it is all grace. Right from the word go. The grace of the one true God. It begins and ends with God. So don't go sacrificing your life to other man-made gods. Why would you? It's someone who knows how to rest in and enjoy the creation, the Sabbath who doesn't try to distort or destroy or or dishonor other images of God. People, mothers, fathers, because that will distort you too. Who is not always longing for something you don't have, what is not his or hers, adultery, theft. 
You flip it round and imagine for a moment a person who's chasing after false gods, who you have to sacrifice to, who doesn't know how to enjoy and rest, who is intent on destroying and dishonoring, who is always longing for what they don't have. Does that sound like a free person to you? I mean, just in natural common sense. No, it doesn't. But it's just the beginning. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, it's the shorthand for the entire Torah, this great constitutional moment in Israel's history. I've been reading a book by a man called George Will. It's called The Conservative Sensibility. Not particularly because I'm a conservative, or not because I'm not, but it's about American conservatism or what it is. I want to understand it because, you know, Americans, they're strange creatures. And American conservatism is rather different to British conservatives. I'm reading about it. And his argument is, look, you know, American conservatism is really about conserving the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, the law that enshrines the founders' vision, limited government, separation of powers. And behind the Constitution, Will argues, the reason for the balance, uh, separation of powers The reason for the way that everything is organized is because it has a particular vision of what it means to be a human being. And you all know what that vision is. It goes like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-evident truths. Well, not in 18th century, no. If you were a Russian serf, it was not self-evident that all men, men and women, were created equal. It's a remarkably radical and progressive law. And you really have to work quite hard at looking and understanding the Constitution to understand why and how the founders of this nation were trying to preserve and conserve that vision of humanity. And it's a bit the same with the law. Jesus also came, did he not, to inaugurate a kingdom? Yes, that's what he said. Not shaped by this world, but by God. And to understand that kingdom, of course, you read the Gospels. You start with Jesus. Jesus is always the lens. But it's quite easy to take things in the gospel and make them what they're not. To distort the picture of Jesus that we have. And when that starts to happen, and sometimes it can happen in the church as a whole, in a national church, sometimes whole parts of the church start to lose the plot. And when you do that, you have to go back I would argue, to the law. Because within the law, if you will read it, if you will dance with it, if you will wrestle with it, is a vision of the kingdom that Jesus comes to begin. And if, like a good dance partner, you really dance with the law, you let it shape you and form you, you're going to find some really interesting things. I would imagine, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, and forgive me if this is not you, but I would imagine that maybe most people here are slightly leaning conservative. 
maybe. Not everybody, I get that. And if you are one of those who would consider yourself a conservative, maybe you would say I'm an evangelical, and if you dance with the law, you might be surprised about some of the things you find. Certainly, if you are more in the conservative evangelical camp, you will be very familiar with the personal moral aspects of the law, what you shouldn't do as an individual, right? But you'll be quite surprised to find parts of the law that deal with social justice. For example, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. Do you remember that part? Do you remember Jesus teaching about that and saying, you heard it said, but I say? And what Jesus was teaching is like, don't take that law and make it a question of personal morality. You've got to love your enemy. That's your personal morality. Love your enemy. But this law was written for the courts of the time in Israel. Why is that interesting? Because in the ancient world, there were lots of law codes, and most of them had completely different laws if you were rich, high social status, or poor. Different judgments, different punishments. For, for a law to come along and say, no, 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 law courts, it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You got to keep it just and for everyone is a remarkable piece of progressive legislation. You might be alarmed, for instance, to find out that the Old Testament law deals in large-scale social engineering. To ensure the poor never becomes too poor, the rich are not too rich, and no one becomes too powerful. If you were an ancient Near East king, your major thing you do is collect money and wives. That's what you do. And horses. Pretty much the same sort of thing. So written into the law, this is in the law, the constitution is this, a king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return in Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way. Go, you're not going to go the world's way. Don't let your kings become too powerful. That's in the law. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, and he shall not acquire excessive silver and gold. How about income distribution? Do you like that? How where are you with that? Mm. Ooh. Here it is in the law. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. What's going on there? It says, every 50 years, all debts cancelled. And if you had a property and I sold it to you, I had a property, every 50 years it would come back to me, to my family. It's a piece of massive social engineering so that the rich never become too rich, and the poor never become too poor. Why? Perhaps because the wisdom says in a society where the rich and the poor are too separated, you can't have shalom. You just can't. I don't know. That's how I interpret it. But it's there in the law. The law is not simple. I know. I know this is quite tough. It's quite hard work in this heat particularly. God's kingdom is not a PowerPoint presentation with ABC. It's a masterwork. It's a piece of extraordinary 
more like a piece of art that you have to dwell on to understand, meditate on, on it, as the psalm puts it. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law is good for you. It's about your freedom. Some years ago, I uh, did the Alpha course. I don't know if you know the Alpha course. The Alpha course is an evangelistic course. And I love, there's a, a session on the Bible, and it talks a little bit about the law. And uh, it's by a man called Nicky Gumbel, who's a vicar in London. And he tells his story when it comes to law. And the British people, I, don't, I think you think we're quite obedient people, because we have a king or a queen or something. Actually, if there's a rebellious streak in America, I think it comes from the Brits. I'm just saying. And so Nicky Gumbel, in this course, where he's talking about the law, he's talking about the Bible and how we feel about it. He tells this story of a sporting event that he was involved with. And this is how it went. He says, some years ago, when my eldest son was eight years of age, they used to play football, so soccer, on Clapham Common, this sort of green area in the center of London. And Andy Busk was their coach. He was the referee. So it was the referee. And I remember one time at the end of term, that's the end of the semester, they'd arranged a sports day. And I went along, and I was actually the only father at the match. And Andy Busk, the referee, hadn't turned up. So I was kind of press-ganged into being a referee. And I had a number of difficulties, because first of all, at that time on Clapham Common, there were no football pitches, no soccer pitches, no markings where the goals were or lines. So I put down a couple of sweaters for the goals. And the other thing is, I didn't have a whistle. Uh, the boys didn't have any different colors for the different teams. They were just in their ordinary clothes, and I didn't know their names. And I also didn't know the rules of soccer. <laughs> and so the match started, and one boy shouted, Oh, the ball's out! And another boy shouted, No, that's not out! And I didn't know, so I'm kind of a non-confrontational person, so I said, Just play on! <laughs> and then somebody did a foul, and somebody said, Hey, that's a foul! And somebody said, That's not a foul! And I didn't know whether it was a foul or not, so I said, Play on! And literally, there were three or four small boys lying on the ground, and soon the place looked like a battlefield. But eventually, to my immense relief, I saw Andy Busk arriving on his bike. And Andy Busk had his whistle. He knew the boys' names. He put them in teams. Every time there was a foul or the ball went out, he blew the whistle, stopped the gale, and he imposed the rules. Now, the question is, were the boys more free when I was refereeing and there was total chaos? Or were they more free when there was someone in charge, there was a definite set of rules, and they were free to enjoy the game? So we're coming to the end. I'm going to draw this to a close. But I, I can't sort of end without just mentioning this. Because when we talk about the law, Always still we have that little narrative, that little question mark as Christians. You know, I, I get that, man. I, I kind of get what you're saying. But Jesus, right? I mean, you know, what about the Jesus bit? I mean, if the law is so good, how come we need Jesus? Aren't you actually making some sort of argument for legalism that really what we should do is try very hard to obey the law and that'll please God and... Isn't that really what you're saying, Matt, this morning? The answer is no. Because as much as I've said about the law and how we need to dance with it, we need to become intimate with it, 
We need to wrestle with it as hard as it sometimes is to understand. There is a deep irony in the law. And it's this, that in the end, that even though the law can give us a picture of what shalom, a kingdom, free people looks like, it cannot itself achieve that liberty. Even though it can give us a picture of liberty, it can't actually achieve that liberty. And I was trying to think of an analogy for this. For some reason or other, as I've been around the church, I've often been around with pe people who work with addiction. My wife actually used to work with uh, predominantly women struggling with eating disorders. And when you see the pattern of addiction, there always comes a moment where if that person wants to get well, they put some boundaries around themselves. If they're drinking too much, they say, well, I can't go into a bar anymore. I can't touch alcohol. And that for them would be a good thing, right? Yeah? But the question is, are they free? And I think the answer to that is no. Because really, and this doesn't always happen with somebody who's struggling with addiction, true freedom is when an addict no longer wants the thing that destroys them. That they no longer even desire it. That is what true freedom looks like. It's what Paul said in Romans, For I do not know, do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is I keep on doing. Do you remember that? Romans 7. So the law gives us this picture, but it doesn't empower us to live that picture out. So we need something or someone else, and that's where Jesus comes in. Even in the Old Testament, God starts to say to the people of Israel, look, there's going to come a time when there's going to be something new about this law. There's going to be a new moment, something radically different with what I'm going to do with the law. This is what God said through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give them, there will come a day when I'll give them, the people, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove a heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Why? Because this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is coming. In the Old Testament, it's coming, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In other words, ultimately, in order to live the law, you've got to want it. You've got to desire it. And you and I, of our own, cannot even really want it. We need God Himself within for us to truly desire God's ways, God's Torah, God's law. And I think that's perhaps what is meant when Jesus says this quite difficult statement. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the great law keepers of the Old Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds it, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can we possibly exceed the Pharisees? Well, maybe because he's talking about something somewhat different. That in the end, the whole purpose 
is that this law would be written into our very desires, our very wants. The story of Exodus is a story of movement towards freedom. It's a story of salvation. The law is a part of that movement. It's an act of essential grace, true identity, authentic freedom. And the freedom that God desires for you and me is not partial. It is absolute and complete. A truly free human being is someone who doesn't just know the law, but whose desires are like God's desires. Who wants what God wants. That's what true freedom is like. So God by His Spirit, will soften us, our hearts, give us hearts of flesh, so that as we dance with God's law, become intimate with it, God Himself writes it into our hearts by the Spirit, so that if we will dance long enough, we are transformed until we, until we too are people who, like Jesus, embody the law, the whole Torah, to a very broken world. Let's pray. So, Lord, in a moment, we're going to come and take communion together. That great sign of our need to feed off you, to feed off your life, to ingest your life, to have our hearts softened so that your words, your law is written into our hearts and your desires become our desires. Your wants, your ways become our ways. Jesus, would you fill us with yourself? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Rod, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Chile trip? Uh, did you have anybody that you wanted yes. to take with you? Yes, yes, I do. We are a little more rested this Sunday. It's been actually exactly seven days to the hour that we got back. So I'm going to ask three of my friends from the mission team to come up. I did want to thank you guys. Um, in, my, in my estimation, it was an incredible trip. Super mature student team, super mature leaders. And uh, I've asked these three to come up as a sampling to share a little bit each about what the Lord taught them or kind of what they experienced while we were away. So hopefully you get little tidbits from each of them. Uh, first person up is going to be Maddie. Hi, I'm Maddie Burns. I'm going into my senior year here at Madison. And something before we went into the trip, I was like very stressed because I'm starting college applications and everyone's always like, oh, what are you going to do? Like, I need to know, like, you need to like have your major figured out and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, <laughs> but um, so going into the first week of Mo, I was very like, like not being able to connect with God and like being able to like, I was very worried and stuff. And um, so I was mostly just kind of th like trying to like forget everything and focus on why we were there. And then when we went down to the south, I had this conversation with my cabin that I was staying with. And it was like I, I was like I could start to feel how like I needed to start like listening more to God and knowing that he always has a plan for me and I don't need to worry. And even though like all this stress is here and... I'm always like thinking about what's next. I don't, I know that God's always there with me, even if I'm in a place where I can't always feel him. And that was pretty cool to like learn while I was there. So yeah. Okay. 
Thank you, Maddie. I think I'll have Ellie come up next. If you could tell them your name and your grade. And... <laughs> um, okay, I'm Ellie Bullett, and I'm going into my first year of college, and I still don't know what I want to do, So, <laughs> um, which is actually one of the really good reasons for experiencing Chile and stuff because I felt like my roots were really strengthened in Christ and just through experiencing the people it was so inspiring seeing how the Holy Spirit moves in them and it just fed into our experience and mine specific because you could see how God just spoke through the people and and it's like some things were directly answered and seeing the way their faith is so strong. It, w- it was so inspiring. And because of that, I just feel super ready to go into these next steps of my life with Christ by my side. And last, but certainly not least. Uh, hi, I'm Luke uh, Cursina. I'm going to be a sophomore at Madison this year. Um, I think going, uh, coming back from Chile, there were two main things that I learned. Um, the first was that, like, I found that especially living here, it's easy to become very cynical about um, understanding who God is and being able to trust him. Uh, I found that I'm able to, like, trust him spiritually, like, with salvation, and I can trust him to um, take care of me after death, but it's hard to trust him fully with practical things and with concrete things in everyday life. Um, and I think that's just something that Uh, the Chileans are incredible at. Um, Going down, seeing them just praying quickly and then going up to strangers, introducing themselves, talking about things, just like being able to fully trust God to actually provide in situations and not second-guessing what he tells them. Um, And I think that's something that I definitely need to be able to carry over um, into Northern Virginia. Um, The second was that... um, when we're here, at least for me, I found that it's easy to feel like it's just um, me or it's just us or our church community um, in the center of a completely dark world. Um, and it feels like we're fairly alone. But going to Chile, seeing how vibrant and how strong and rich the church community was, being able to see the similarities between the Anglican church there, but also seeing the differences reflecting different characteristics of God and his church Um, was incredibly encouraging, seeing how strong and powerful um, the church uh, is spread across our world and how much um, support we have in all areas of the globe um, was incredibly encouraging and made me feel so much better about everything that um, I'm trying to focus on with Christianity. Thank you, you guys. You guys rock. Yeah, thank you to these three and thank you uh, to the entire team.